Good afternoon. It's time for Boat Talk on our community radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. The Boat Talk guys are still not allowed into the station because of the COVID. So this month will be a rerun of an interesting show from 2013 that is appropriate for this time of the year as we are headed into winter. And it's also appropriate to tell you that this week is WERU's last fundraiser of the year. Please keep this non-commercial community radio station afloat by making a donation at WERU.org while you are listening to this boat talk from eight years ago. Phone calls cannot be taken during this show. Good morning, good morning. That's Schooner Fair piping in Boat Talk here on Community Radio. Boat Talk. Boat Talk is the call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors. Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. And we are joined uh, by Tim Garrity. This this show, Tim is the uh, director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. Hi, Tim. Morning. Welcome for joining us. Boat Talk... Um, Started out being a, a a show started in May, and we thought we'd talk about boats. But we said, "What are we going to be doing in the winter time?" And then today will be a fine example of what you can talk about boat boating wise in the winter time. We're going to be talking about some cold weather clothing. But before we do that, I'd like to tell you one little quick seasonal story. Um, I have a, a lobster fisherman friend who has this uh, pet lobster. He used to call him Claude, but. He's decided to change his name because uh, Claude has this habit of uh, using the, uh, you know, those alcohol wipes to uh, clean off his pinchers every time before he eats so that his pinchers are very, very clean. So my fisherman buddy now calls him Santa Claus. And here I was worried there was no pun in there. (laughs) (laughs) I, I know better. <laughs> we always try to start off boat talk at a low point. Uh, yeah. Work up from there. Yeah, glad you didn't warn us that was coming. <laughs> we like him, we like him anyway. You know. <laughs> hey, uh, boat talk. Like I say, we started uh, in May a uh, long time back, filling in for somebody else, and, and wondered what the heck. And when they says, "Hey, that's great, you got to do a year round." We what? Well, we talk about in the winter time, but yeah. it's an embarrassment of riches. And and this no morning problem. we'll talk about staying warm among other things and. Uh, we always like to start with a couple of uh, uh, clippings from the news file during the month uh, on the maritime seam here. And here's a big one. And they all kind of relate uh, to a common theme here this they morning. They do, yeah. Which is that the water is changing. They're all sad tales of sorts, too. Yeah. Uh, the water is changing. It's warming up. And uh, my last 30 years of running up and down the East Coast of North America, you know, I've noticed, the, you know, a great change in the fisheries mix and the vessel mix and the and the gear mix offshore there. And it's it's just uh, changing. And the uh, new normal is always something different. But this new normal is not good at all. The shrimp season off the coast of Maine has been canceled this year, and there just aren't any. Okay, about uh, 90% of the shrimp seem to be missing as they survey them, and they're just not there. Yeah. Some people say that they are there, and, and it's politics, but our friend Glenn Libby from down in Port Clyde, he says they're not there. They're not there. Yeah, and, Glenn would know. Uh, yeah, Glenn uh, started uh, Port Clyde Fresh Catch uh, a few years back to um, process shrimp and other things down in Port Clyde there. We uh, talked to him on Boat Talk a while back, and he's got three pounds left of the of the tasty little critters. 
Three pounds. Three pounds. That's all he's got left in the freezer, okay? Uh, this has happened before. There was a uh, moratorium in 1978, and shrimp re- rebounded quite well. Um, the uh, fishing pressure is not the only source of mortality as the water warms up. There's a, a decrease in reproduction and an increase in predation. And another weird thing, shrimp change their sex as they age. Oh, good. I thought we'd bring in something subject to make boat talk more interesting. Yeah, they change from, <laughs> from male to female at about three years of age, okay? And uh, nowadays they're finding, the shrimp that they do find, they're finding lots of four-year-old males, which is a sign of a stressed population wow. just yeah. can't be good, you know? They're thinking uh, no shrimp fishing for about five years. There's about 500 people have licenses, about 200 boats out there uh, would be fishing, you know, who won't be. So things are changing. That's not very good. And those things are so delicious. Have to get them all shucked out. Um, You know, kind of ruin you for those big ones when you. uh, Yeah. 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 The other thing is that uh, you should realize is that uh, this is the southern end. Uh, Shrimp is a cold water thing, and uh, we're on the southern end of their habitat here. As you go north, uh, things are are better, but uh, again, water's warming up, things are changing, not for the better. Mm -hmm. Um, The urchin season. Started up, the price turns out to be low. Uh, uh, congregating down in Cobbs Cook Bay, uh, when it opened up there, you get uh, Asian buyers come down from Portland, Cambodians and stuff, and, and uh, a fella can go out and uh, fill up seven totes in about three hours. That's your limit, okay? Seven totes is your limit. Those three totes, uh, seven totes, worth six to eight hundred bucks probably for a morning's work. But again, uh, the price is down, and and uh, that was one of the formerly boom fisheries that was yeah. out there. I hear they're getting pretty scarce now too. Yeah, there's uh, that that uh, boomed and busted a little bit. The uh, new one, of course, is the Elvers, and they're trying desperately to get a handle on the Elver fishery now. They're thinking of, of uh, issuing plastic debit cards to Elver fishermen to try to keep track of of. Uh, Inventory, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and who, population. Who, who really getting them legally and who not? Ooh, um, again, that's a cash fishery for the Elvers, and it's a bit of a gold rush. Last, uh, as I like keep pointing out, last uh, uh, winter uh, in uh, Ellsworth, Maine, uh, first night of the season, a half a million dollars of cash changed hands in Ellsworth. Well, wow. not even talking about some other towns. Okay, half a million dollars—that's a big night anywhere, you know. So. Uh, how about this one? Sea stars. Now, we always call them starfish, but apparently that's not cool anymore because they ain't yeah. fish. They're, they're an echinoderm, an uh, exoskeleton kind of thing, more like a sea urchin. And uh, so we'll call them sea stars now. They are in trouble, and uh, this is new, too. Uh, there have been sea star die-offs in the past, but uh, mostly in warm water. Now it's happening in cold water and in the Atlantic and Pacific and, and other uh, around the world um, and across uh, in past times. Maybe one species of sea stars has died off. Now they're all turning into goo. Mm. Now sea stars, they eat. Um, mussels and stuff. and uh, and clams. Yeah, yeah, and that promotes uh, seaweed on the bottom, which makes habitat an ecosystem for little fishies and also anchors the bottom when the big storms come. So they're kind of important in the mix of things. And what's happening to them, I think it might be a virus, but they're not sure. Is it happening up north, too? It's happening all around the world at the present time and across the species kind of new. And, uh, you know, can't be good, you would just think. Anyway... Here's the um, uh, last one in this category, which is uh, right whales. Now, uh, they go out and fly airplanes around the Gulf of Maine. They uh, uh, survey quite a lot of it. They have some favorite places, uh, Cape Cod Bay, the Great South Channel that drains off of George's Bank there and places like that. Um, 
sightings are down about 90%, and they're only seeing about 50 whales, and it's all the same whale a lot of times mm-hmm. instead of like 500 whales. Yeah. And uh, they're not in uh, big groups. Now, here's the cool thing, though. Although they were flying around, they saw a lot of other stuff. Fin whales, pilot whales, humpback whales, sei whales, S-E-I. I'm not even sure what that is. I don't, mm. think, I don't know if I've seen one or not. No, I think they come from Japan. A basking shark. I've seen one of those. Uh, it was, yeah. Saw a basking shark those longer than the 45-foot boat we were on one day. That was pretty cool. Got pictures, too, on the Boat Talk website. Ocean sunfish. Those are uh, a warm water species that drifts up here and is very lethargic in cold water. The funniest-looking thing. Looks like a whale's head with a little tiny floppy fin on top. And you look at it, and you go, where's the rest of the thing? (laughs) And it's just like a disembodies win. Yeah, yeah, we hit one going to Nova Scotia on autopilot a few years back with the sailboat. Mm. um, Are these warm-water species? They're warm-water species, and they they end up up here, yes. And Um, are right whales cold-water species? Right right whales belong here. And uh, in past years, last year they saw like 500. This year they can't hardly find any. And that's the same whale they're seeing over and over again. Also out there, uh, besides the ocean sunfish and all those uh, whales, uh, Atlantic whiteside dolphins, bottlenose dolphins, common dolphins, and harbor porpoises. A lot of interesting stuff out there. It still is. Hopefully yeah. it'll uh, not turn too sour. The, 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 down, the decrease in shrimp and uh, the lack of whales probably go together because shrimp are just basically large krill, which is what the... Uh, the whales are looking for, and yeah. I bet you there's probably not a lot of quill out there, too, which explain no whales. And again, you have to remember about the ecosystem model. If you pull on one thing, it pushes on sure. something else. It's, right. all, it's a web yeah. that's connected. You can't just uh, mess with one thing and say, oh, yeah, well, we miss them. Yeah. Um, it's all connected. Yeah. Here's a good one. The uh, Nova Scotia Car Ferry is going to come back, uh, Portland to Yarmouth, and uh, we're aiming for May 1st. It's going to be called the Nova Star. It's still in Singapore, and uh, it's got to get over here, and they're on a tight time schedule. They think this one's going to work. They're going to do overnight trips and have cabins as well as gambling and amenities and stuff, so you want to ride it as a cruise boat, let alone a ferry. And uh, interestingly enough, these uh, fellows from uh, STM Quest Navigation, um, uh, Steve Durrell is uh, the chief operating officer, and, uh, oh, Amundsen is the other fellow there. These are both uh, uh, Maine Maritime graduates who uh, met at Irving Shipbuilding in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, Durrell was the president. Amundsen was the director of ship repair. This is big time, and the Nova Scotia government's ponying up tens, uh, tens of millions of dollars. So, is this going to be a year-round ferry? Year-round, yeah. Great. And uh, coming back in the springtime, they say. Cool. Yeah. That's most of it. Okay. Great. Um, did you actually? Uh, were the source of the inspiration for this show, Mike, um, when you delivered the Chewbacca boat this last, what was it, August, September? No, last spring, wasn't it? Uh, it was July. July, July. yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Lewis H. story. It was yeah. warm. Yes. It was warm, but you also made the comment about even though you were offshore, you were kind of cold in that boat, and there wasn't a whole lot of shelter, and uh, you sort of... Um, extrapolated from that about how rugged the people who back in the 1700s worked on those boats must be in the wintertime and uh, what what did they really wear to stay warm in those boats and so a listener a listener called up um, after the show and said that he would be interested in hearing a show talking about um, cold weather clothing especially the history of cold weather clothing so there you go here here it is perfect subject for December Um, let's uh 
make sure everybody gets the Lewis H. Story thing. Uh, Tim is from the MDI Historical Society, and they borrowed the Lewis H. Story from the Essex Shipbuilding Museum, who built this replica of a colonial uh, Chewbacca pinky schooner, um, which is reputedly the same boat that Abraham Soames brought his uh, wife and four comely daughters and, and a cow or two down in, uh, what, 1763, wasn't it? 1762, but yeah. it was the, that was the boat that um, was the hardest working boat of the... 18th century. I like Mike's description of the pickups of the sea. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, the uh, MDI people borrowed it from the Essex people, and and I helped deliver it uh, down and back, so got to do a little time trip in there. My thing was, now... I'll, you know, how about my costume? I want some period clothing, and, and if I get period, if I got a costume, I'm going to want appropriate weaponry as well, because it's 1762, so, you know. Yeah. Um, none yeah. of that came true, so. Um, well, I think it, the place opened up because it got kind of peaceful after 1761, and this became the eastern frontier. We often think of the American expansion as moving out to the west, but in fact, after 150 years of conflict between the English and the French, this uh, area, uh, Down East Maine, opened up in 1761 and uh, became a place where settlers could come and uh, invest capital of time and money to uh, set up and claim a, uh, claim a part of the land and know that they could keep it. Uh, before that, you just couldn't do it. Several generations uh, just got more and more crowded in Massachusetts until the, uh, the eastern frontier opened up, and that's where this Chewbacca boat came into play. It, it was a working boat. It could move your family. Uh, everybody who got on board the Lewis H. Story wanted to know, how'd you get the cattle in here? And there was a, there's a little cuddy under the foredeck. It leaked badly. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, was quite wet yeah. under there. And, uh, yeah, no, uh, there was no four-star restaurants. In fact, there was, uh, you know, just a little, we brought a little backpack and stove. And, um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty uh, primitive, no doubt about it. And, again, we're in our modern uh, gear thinking now them old folks, they're a lot rougher, a uh, lot ruggeder. Than we are. You know, well, there is a question of, of you know what did they what did they wear? But I think that what you're saying is the the basic uh, premise here is that we are accustomed to a higher level of comfort no doubt. than people in the 18th and 19th oh, century. Yes, yeah, so, there's a simple truth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We have the expectation of having dry feet. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking as I was driving here, it's kind of sloppy outside and how my car heater keeps my feet nice and dry. And, you know, they would they would go without any kind of waterproof clothing for extended periods and just get cold. That's just part of life. My truck doesn't have heated seats. <laughs> what? You know? And I made it over here this morning, okay? How rugged am I? Yeah, tough guy. Um, but, you know, uh, it's a fact. Uh, again, we're, we're a little spoiled nowadays. And, and we can't, the average American has to bail out of his living room when the, when the electricity goes off nowadays, you know? Yeah. Um, and again, uh, we we're, uh, don't live as rugged, but that's a good thing. We're not complaining about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the attempt to stay dry, I think wax had a lot to do with it way back then. Um, a lot of clothing that was just tarred and feathered, as it were. Yeah, there was um, – uh, Alan, you asked me this question on, on Friday, and, uh, you know, we try not to have all the answers, but instead at least be curious. It's a really <laughs> interesting question. I have, I'm looking at an ad from the Bangor Wig and Courier in 1938 and uh it advertises uh, uh several types of clothing uh, like uh, such as pilot cloth uh which we're familiar with the term peacoat 
the term peacoat is from pilot coat, or uh, and it's made out of pilot cloth, a heavy, a huh. heavy wool. I thought it was P-E-A, but it, I know it's spelled P-E-A. Yeah, it o- it often is, but it comes from the term uh, for uh, pi- okay. for pilot cloth, and uh, they also used oil cloth, which is cotton soaked in in linseed oil, mm-hmm. and uh, there also was. Uh, Rubbers were available in the 1830s. I don't know if uh, if they were available earlier than that, but they were they were for sale in uh, in Bangor in any in any case. So there were some clo- there was some clothing of that kind, uh, but um, I think it was uh, hard to control the moisture that your body generates when you're working hard. That's always been the puzzle yeah. of uh, of in, uh, clothing for inclement weather. You know, they said the Norwegians have a saying, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. And I think that our, you know, people who went before us, they had bad weather and bad clothing, uh, nothing no, nothing breathable. And uh, if you want to look at uh, uh, some people who really had this problem solved, it was the Arctic explorers. They were, had really severe weather. And of course, they learned everything they knew about cold weather clothing from the Inuit people. Right. And if you uh, look at the uh, front page of the state section of the Bangor News this morning, you see uh, that Robert Perry's home is uh, nominated as a National Historic Landmark. And uh, there, if you, in my exploring, try to find out what's what's up with cold weather clothing, you can, uh, I came across this picture of Matthew Henson, who was uh, Perry's assistant, and we're talking about 1909 when Perry went up to uh, attempt to discover the pole, whether he accomplished that is in dispute, but there's no doubt that they encountered some incredible weather, 75 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, uh, heavy winds, and they could be comfortable in clothing like this. If uh, anybody goes to our Facebook page this morning, you'll see a picture of Matthew Henson standing in this incredible suit of fur that uh, could protect him from almost any any conditions. And it was all based on animal skin and venting, and there was a real active use of freezing and thawing. The the clothing was adapted so that it could be used as a sleeping bag as well as a uh, clothing. You could basically live in this for months at a time. They uh, controlled moisture by having it loose-fitting that allowed moisture to get out. To keep feet dry, they would put uh, grasses on the bottom of the uh, soles of the f- uh, feet and then throw the grass out every day or two, uh, and ex- you know, getting rid of moisture that way. And that way they could uh, live in those boots for days at a time without having to uh, be exposed to fire. You bring up a uh, point I joke about on boat deliveries quite often, which is uh, uh, personal cleanliness and body oils and stuff. I, I know a fellow who has to have a shower every time he goes on watch. I like to think I'm building up some natural body oils and will repel some mo- some uh, you know moisture myself if I live in those clothes uh, instead of change change my clothes every day and uh, every watch and have a shower every you know. Something to that, like say living in those clothes and developing that funky uh, layer there. Well, I think a daily shower is a pretty modern, uh, modern invention. I think people went a long way uh, in between baths or or showers. 
uh, you might go months without taking a bath in the 18th, 19th century and uh, this part of Maine. You might and I'm just saying way. those uh, natural body oils, uh, you know, do they help keep any, anything in? Any advantage to being, like, say, a little, little greased up? <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of insulating value to body oils. Uh, I think you, uh, you know, you, one of the things I, I looked into is when did people first start wearing clothing? And uh, the answer I get is uh, about 100,000 years ago, a date that can be determined fair with some exactness because scientists have uh, researched the DNA of uh, head lice and body lice and where they seem to have diverged about 107,000 years ago. Body lice have to live in the, uh, under clothing, and it appears that that's when they first developed as a distinct s- species. And um, Clothing is uh, uh, started to develop as a protective and ornamental device, and then as man started moving and humans started to move into colder climates, it became necessary to keep uh, keep ourselves warm. And uh, much of what we learned, uh, the early explorers learned about cold weather clothing. They learned from native people who lived with it, and they they used uh, the skins of animals quite a bit to uh, as the basic tool. When the settlers moved in here uh, in the 18th century, they were using more fiber material. Uh, why they didn't extensively use uh, animal skin, I, I, I don't know. But they tried to adapt different fibers, rubbers, of uh, using uh, international trade as a means of getting these types of materials well, in. One, one reason I would think of is it's easier to get wool than it is to get polar bear. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. And and, and they're not dealing with temperatures as quite as severe as you are in an Arctic environment, though, like you started out the program talking about how it is warmer. It was quite a bit colder uh, in Maine in the 19th century. Uh, Just reading about the pilgrims, uh, the natives were way underdressed compared to the the pilgrims when when they all got together. Yeah, and tougher, too. Yeah, and tougher. Yeah. Uh, Really. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring another uh, fellow into We have right on the phone now, though... uh, a fellow who uh, knows quite a bit about cold weather and sailing offshore is Jerry Richards. Um, Jerry is the North American manager of Gill, North America. Gill makes a great... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Not my as, ringtone. That's Jerry's phone, I think, maybe. Um, I'm back. Uh, yeah, that's Jerry there. Uh, Jerry... Uh, I called up Jerry because uh, I went to Hamilton Marine, our local marine supplier here, and spoke with a friend of mine there, Chris, who is a a long-time boater and knows a fair amount about cold weather and on the water, too. And I said, Chris, what is the best clothing manufacturer for offshore? And he immediately said, Gill Clothing, no hesitation. He said, Gill is definitely the best. And if you want to talk about um, clothing for cold water... You should talk with Jerry Richards. So here we are now talking with Jerry Richards. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. You are, as am I correct in saying, the uh, North American manager of Gill NA? Yes, I'm the I'm the sales manager. Uh, you know, cover all the states and uh, sometimes get lucky to go down to the Caribbean as well, where uh, obviously life's a little warmer. Um, but we have a lot of clothing for uh, sun protection as well. We're not just we're not just there to keep you warm and keep you dry. Right. Well, um, Gill has put a lot of thought and time into uh, keeping warm and dry. Why don't you talk a little bit about the history? 
Well, um, Nick Gill, uh, Mr. Gill, started actually making clothing uh, for sailing. He was a, a dinghy sailor, you know, the smaller boats, um, for himself as a university project. Um, and he started in his father's ladies' lace-making factory. So he had, uh, you know, he had um, machine, sewing machines and people who could cut fabrics and all that good stuff available to him. And when he finished his university project, lo and behold, he actually had a business that he could start working with. Um, that was over 35 years ago. And uh, Gill North America uh, started business uh, with Gill 30 years ago. Uh, when they were only able to supply gloves and what we call a dinghy smock top, it was very limited. Whereas nowadays, uh, any of the listeners doing any type of sailing, whether it's going down in the Southern Ocean, you know, on their way to Australia or New Zealand, or if it's just sailing or power boating on the local lake, um, we actually have all the different requirements, different styles of jackets, um, the layering system, which is um, very close to my heart, and I know we're going to be talking about that. Uh, shortly, you know, if you want to stay warm, it's about layering. Okay, very good. Also, um, 35 years ago, the uh, the materials must have been quite different than they are now, too. Not quite different. They were terrible. <laughs> and, uh, and I have personal experience of that. You know, back in the day, we really didn't understand... Uh, you know, we knew that wool helped keep you warm and you wanted to be protected from the elements, so you'd wear what we called oil skins, which, you know, originally were exactly that. They were, um, you know, skins covered in oil to repel the water. Well, we've come a long way. Really, about every two or three years, uh, there is a jump in fabric technology. Uh, the fabrics over the years have got lighter and lighter and lighter, but they haven't lost any durability. They're also going to last a lot longer. Um, and about uh, really sort of 15, 20 years ago, a new element came into uh, the foul weather gear, and that was what they call breathable fabrics. And that is a transformation. If you're doing any sort of longer distance sailing, you know, from an hour, two hours, two days, ten days, you know, two months, breathable fabrics are a godsend when it comes to staying warm, especially when you're sailing through the night. Um, you know, the, it, we call them breathable, but just so the audience knows, what it really is is moisture vapor transfer. It, the fabric allows the moisture that we build up, you know, from, our, from sweating, perspiring, or if water gets down our neck or up our sleeves, um, it allows the moisture to get out through the fabric, but absolutely not allow any rainwater or seawater or whatever the water is to come back through the jacket. Very important. In the old days, there were some issues uh, with the moisture going both ways, you know, leaking in and getting out. Um, but those days are long gone. So uh, the audience needs to be comforted. But, by, you know, if we tell you a jacket's going to keep you dry, we absolutely guarantee that. But uh, the biggest um, error that some people make is just, and it's only because they don't, have the knowledge is what they wear under the foul weather gear jackets and bibs um, and that's very important and that's where we come to layering the um, obvious ultimate example what you're saying is uh, a lot of people know it uh, they'll put on the trash bag thing and oh. again you're going to be wetter inside that trash bag than you will be almost uh, if you didn't put trash bag on to stop keep you from dry from the rain and as you say breathing um, 
if you uh, are dressed in a trash bag, you can still have good layers on underneath. But like I say, um, uh, let's get back to layers there, Jerry. It's a short-term, short-term um, solution. Um, yes, the, the water, the rain's not going to get through, you know, the old plastic foul weather gear or, you know, sort of trash bag type syndrome. Um, but then what becomes a real issue for people, if you're out on a cold day and you're trying to stay warm, then um, one, uh, one thing we do know, if you have any moisture, we're not talking soaking wet, but any moisture close to your skin, you start to lose body heat um, 20 times quicker than when your skin is dry. And that is very important to understand that because if you're going sailing for an hour or two, that's yeah, not a big deal. We can cope with, you know, a little bit of coldness. But once we're over the two, three-hour period, if we're starting to get cold, the, that feeling is just going to increase um, exponentially because, uh, you know, when we're losing body heat at uh, 20 times when our skin's dry, we're obviously using a lot of energy. And once we start losing energy and our energy reserves go down, the whole thing just gets worse until we're approaching uh, hypothermia. Um, so one of the key things, and uh, if anybody's out there making notes, never, ever wear cotton against your skin. Biggest mistake uh, a lot of people make, uh, and I do the same. I wear a cotton undershirt, you know, during the day. But when we go on the water, um, there's no need to take anything cotton. If you wear your undershirt, you know, during the day, if you weighed it in the morning and then weighed it in the evening when you took it off, you'd probably find it was as much as 25% heavier than when you put it on in the morning. And all that is is, you know, as we perspire, um, the moisture stays in the cotton. Once the moisture's in the cotton, we're back to, if we go out for a longer period, we're going to start losing body heat at uh, 20 times quicker than when, when it's dry. So uh, don't be wearing any jeans or your favorite cotton sailing shirt um, if you're going for a longer day, and especially if you're going through the night. At 2 o'clock in the morning, it's so hard to stay warm um, because the body wants to go to sleep, so it's closing down. We've used a lot of energy during the day. And so, you know, staying, well, frankly, staying warm is almost impossible. But you don't need to be as cold um, as you've probably experienced in the past. And the way you do that is the first layer, there are only three layers, but the first layer you wear against your skin is what we call a wicking layer. It's a tighter fitting shirt and trousers. So as soon as you sweat, the moisture is lifted to the top of the fabric away from your skin so your skin is dry. And then uh, the effect from there is the, the second layer you wear is the mid-layer. That's the bit that keeps you warm. So the perspiration can then pass through the mid-layer. It comes up against the outside layer. And then it, you know, by moisture vapor transfer, breathability, it passes through and on its way out. So we got a um, high-tech undershirt. We got a polar fleece jacket. And uh, uh, what do you call it? What do you st- uh, Oh, Gore-Tex, breathable, Gore-Tex yeah, breathable. Uh, on the outside sort of thing. And well, Gore-Tex is just a manufacturer, um, you know, manufacturer's name. Uh, there's a lot of other fabrics out there, um, but they really started the whole breathable process, and they do a fantastic job, um, but there are also a lot of other fabrics out there, but uh, most people know, know the brand Gore-Tex. One thing to know, um, okay, if you're keeping your skin dry with the base layer, a lot of people are going to say, oh, I wear my base layer and it keeps me warm. Well, that's only because you weren't wearing good base layer in the first place. 
because a base layer on a hot day, if you're having to wear your foul weather gear, will help to keep you cool as well. As soon as you, as soon as you perspire on a hot day under the jacket or the bibs, the moisture needs to get away from your skin, and the base layer will do that. It'll transport the moisture from the skin to the top layer of the base layer. And, um, you know, we, we stay cool by sweating. It allows us to sweat more. Um, and the last thing you want is the moisture close to your skin. And here's why. Our body skin temperature, not our core, but our skin temperature is about 87 degrees. So if you have any moisture close to your skin, like it's stuck in a cotton T-shirt, um, your, your body temperature is going to heat the water, you know, stuck in the shirt to about 87 degrees. So it's very hard to get cool. But the benefit of having your body heat at about 87 degrees on a cold day, we're wearing the wicking layer, the base layer, so our skin is perfectly dry. And then all we want to do is trap air um, again close to our skin. And if we can trap air close to our skin, our skin's going to heat that air to around 87 degrees. That's going to keep us warm. So we use two items for that. Uh, you mentioned one earlier, a fleece jacket. All the fleece jacket does, there's nothing magical in the fleece um, other than it has pockets of air in the fleece. And our, our skin temperature heats the air in those pockets. That's what keeps us warm. Um, another garment we would talk about is what we call a lofted garment, like sleeping bag material. And you can get jackets and pants, you know, made of lofted fabrics. Make sure they don't absorb any water if you're going sailing. Um, and again, this is just pockets of air that our body is going to heat and trap that hot air, you know, close to our body. If you're getting cold, you just need to increase the thickness of the air that's being trapped by wearing a thicker fleece. They come in a variety of um, thicknesses or, you know, the way they're actually manufactured, lots of pocket air, um, pockets of air. So we've got our base layer keeping our skin dry. We've got our mid layer that's trapping the air and our body is heating that air. And then the outer layer, the waterproof bit, all that does, it stops the water getting in, obviously, but it stops the wind blowing the warmed air out of the mid layer. And that's all you need to know to stay warm when you're out uh, on the water. Got to keep your head warm too, Jerry. Yes, a um, bit of a misconception here. A lot of people say, uh, oh, you know, if you ask them, well, how much body heat do you lose out of your head? Um, if you were naked, you'd lose the same amount of heat out of your head as you would off your arm or somewhere else. The reason we feel uh, that we lose more body heat out of our head is because we often just leave it exposed. Very hard to, you know, wear something over your whole face um, because we want to see, we want to feel the wind, you know, when we're sailing. Um, so, but it's the same, absolutely the same theory um, as we've just described with the layering. Jerry, uh, our, uh, our, what's the place of wool in an outfit like this? Wool is, is, is there? fantastic as long as it comes from south of the equator. Um, <laughs> a well, I don't know what the difference is. Obviously, they grow the sheep a little bit different down there. And it's just a well-known fact. I'm sure the listeners would have heard of merino wool, and they come from the merino sheep. Um, and it's just a well-known fact that the merino wool um, is a superior wool for the wicking layer, uh, for keeping you warm. It dries really quick. And the new wools, um, honestly... I'm not one of those people that can wear the wool. Just thinking about it, you know, it makes me itch. Uh, I do have quite a sensitive skin, um, but it just feels like soft cotton. It's, it's a wonderful material. Okay. Um, I'm going to 
go for a little bit of a insider knowledge here, Jerry, um, going yeah. to the base layer. Uh, when you said not cotton, I had two other thoughts to come to mind, both silk and polypropylene. And there's probably more now, too. Why don't you talk about uh, materials you like for layer number one? Good, Both good materials. Um, anybody in the audience who thinks, uh, great, I'm well on the way. I already have my base layer. A um, couple of things you might want to know. Um, if you just have the, the modern base layer material um, is polyester. Um, it's a little softer than some of the older poly mix uh, fabrics. If you think of poly, polypropylene rope, you know, it's pretty hard and spiky. It is. Um, so, we, you know, we, we moved away from polypropylene. Uh, years ago to to polyester. That's how old my uh, underwear are. <laughs> right, right. But, caution the audience, if you have polyester base layer, um, until more recent years, uh, we used to just coat the fabric. I'm not just talking about gear, I'm talking in general. Uh, we used to just coat the fabric. So as you um, wear it, um, that coating slowly starts to rub away. As you wash it, it really starts to, to go away, oh. Oh, you know, 50 washes or whatever. So all of a sudden, you know, if you're going on a longer trip overnight, all you're wearing is a polyester shirt with no wicking element in it. It'll still be a lot more comfortable wearing a cotton shirt, but a new piece of polyester base layer would change that whole experience dramatically. Hmm. In recent years, we no longer uh, coat the fabric. Uh, what Gill does um, is actually weave in a, a, a natural wicking yarn and it's actually bamboo so we weave into the polyester bamboo we scorch the bamboo so and that brings in another word we haven't talked about antimicrobial anti-stink hmm. so the polyester shirts you know aren't going to smell so quick um so you know it's a permanent feature in the shirt so that's that's the polyester route we talked about the merino wool that's another one and then um for silk Silk is another natural fiber, great fiber. Um, a lot of skiers wear silk. But here's something you may not know about silk. Um, silk, instead of being a round fiber, is a triangulated fiber. So when we're skiing and walking around and doing all those good things, wonderful fabric for, for wicking and you know keeping the skin dry. However, from personal experience, when you sit on silk for three or four days going upwind in 40 knots of wind, with your legs over the side because the weight, you know, the crew weight on a race boat is very important and you're sitting over the side. So you're just sliding backwards and forwards day and night. That little triangular thread, that can really do some damage to the skin. So uh, if you're cruising, great fabric for that. If you're racing, um, there are other products that you might want to consider. Silk doesn't take a lot of chafe is what you're saying. It makes Something a lot of chafe. Like that, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Ch Chafe's always but, but the enemy. <laughs> That's yes. in extreme conditions, especially, you know, in the lower area, you know, on a sailboat, when you're going long distances, it's very hard, um, you know, to keep the skin clean and dry and, you know, cruising, it's a, it's a lot easier, allowed to wash more, you know, do all those good things. But if you're an avid racer, uh, that can be, you know, quite a difficult area, to, you know, after a few days, uh, it can be quite painful. I do a lot of delivery work, Jerry, and you've really impressed upon me to re-examine my base layer, which is basically a, a very old shirt at this time, which is very lucky. I've been a lot of, a lot of miles with it, but like I say, it's probably not functional anymore. Well, uh, easy test there is, you know, buy a fresh piece of base layer, 
one night wear the fresh piece and the next night wear the old piece and uh, I'm, I know you'll find a dramatic difference. Hmm. Jerry, are the best materials in a price range that typical working person can afford or are, is this uh, latest technology something that's extremely expensive? I mean, how much does it cost to have a full waterproof kit? Well, that's a very good question. Here's some good news. The fabrics have got more improved. They've got more durable. I can't say they're more waterproof because, you know, waterproof is waterproof. Um, but they're more durable. They're going to last longer. The fabrics have got softer. The way we cut the garments, um, you know, they're more comfortable to wear. And because it's such a price-conscious business, you know, there's a lot of competition, with all the ongoing developments, the prices haven't actually gone up very much over the years. But to answer the question, uh, here's something listeners would, I'm sure they'd like to know. If you go into a sailing boat shop and you see all these jackets hung up, or if you're at a boat show, you know, it's a minefield. How do you know which jacket you really need? Here's one simple thing to look at, the height of the collar. The further offshore you go, the collar just gets taller and taller. Yeah, so if yeah, you're I like looking for, a, for an inshore jacket, it's just going to be a short collar. So price-wise, um, jacket and trousers, um, you know, you're probably, for a good set, let's say a coastal, coastal offshore set, um, you're looking in the region of um, maybe $400. Could you get something cheaper? Here's something you need to know. In foul weather gear, you truly pay for what you get. And it's all down to the fabrics. 50% of the cost of the garment to the manufacturer is wholly in the fabric itself. So, uh, so you know, you can pay up to, you know, $600 just for a jacket. Now, that would be for somebody going down to the Southern Ocean or crossing the Atlantic, you know, four or five times Jerry, you know, during um, a year. We, ha- we have a caller, so uh, let's, let's go to that. And, uh... Great. Phone calls cannot be taken to this pre-recorded show, but we certainly can take fall fundraiser contributions at weru.org. And thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, this is Gray from Hancock. Hi, Gray. Great show. And I'd like to uh, have both of your call- callers comment, if possible, on something that it's kind of, uh, that I've always been fascinated by. I've never, never actually encountered any, but I've heard about boiled mittens. They used to make mittens that were like three times too big, and then boil them, they'd shrink. And the fishermen, the Gloucester fishermen, used to use them when they went on the Grand Banks. And um, apparently, they were quite effective. I wonder if any of your uh, uh, guests have any um, have have done any comparisons between modern modern hand gear and uh, and the the antique one and what might be the drawbacks and the advantages thanks a lot well thank you gray that's that's a lovely suggest- suggestion uh, we'll see if we can put a finger on it for you um i see tim right here is looking through he's had some notes on uh, well mittens. I'm, no i'm sorry i can't help you much with mittens though that uh, the only news i have is that uh couples uh, men usually went to sea women were at home all the sewing was done at home and the work the research i've done i haven't seen any reference to boiling mittens uh so i can't help you much i've heard of it but um maybe maybe jerry may be able to help it really uh concentrates the wool shrinks the wool and uh compacts it makes it much uh denser is the idea 
Well, then fewer air pockets. But, um, Jerry, what do you have to say about that? Um, never heard of it, so I do apologize for that. Um, most people would know, you know, going sailing, getting cold hands, cold feet, they sort of go together. Uh, but there are some solutions to help the situation. Um, again, it, it's just like um, if we talk about modern fabrics, uh, the, wool, the wool situation, I'm sure that would have helped a lot um, because, again, as, as you mentioned, um, it traps air close to the skin and that all helps. Wool is a natural wicking fiber, so when your hands sweat or you get water close to your skin, you know, it, it is slowly going to take it away and it will take days to dry. Modern developments, though, um, again, we get sweaty palms. You know, when we get anxious, our palms get... Uh, a little bit moist so we're back to the we're going to start losing heat again through the skin 20 times quicker than if it's dry so modern days we have a glove if you do suffer from cold hands and i am going to tell you about this glove because it's quite unique it's called the helmsman's glove it's three pieces well it's three gloves in one you have the outer face fabric which is not waterproof it's there to protect the breathable waterproof membrane the breathable waterproof membrane is the second glove and then we have a third glove on the inside, which helps take the moisture away from your skin. Um, so it's a three-layer glove. And I recommend that to everybody I talk to who is suffering with the cold, um, because it will make a difference. But uh, you can even put a wet hand into the glove and it will slowly dry. Um, but it's the same theory as we've talked about through the show, keeping your skin dry, trapping air close to your skin, and stopping the moisture getting back into the that this uh, stage would be the glove. So sorry, I don't know, uh, Gray, about the the boiled um, uh, materials. But what I am going to do is I'm going to look that up because I teach on this at boat shows and things, and that'll be a great talking point to bring that up. So uh, thanks for bringing that uh, to the conversation. Gray, let me. Uh, uh, this is Tim Garrity. Let me uh, mention something that. Uh, about wool, and that is that it was central to keeping the family warm in the 18th century. And the we have a pretty well documented history of the Gilly family who lived on Baker's Island. They were uh, Baker's Island, like many of the islands, Mount Desert Island, many places on the coast of Maine were actually bare of trees. Uh, trees are a rather modern. Uh, 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 event on these islands. They were bare because they were constantly grazed. And a family like the Gilly family on Baker's Island had used the wool of 50, uh, 50 sheep for their large family on that small island, about a half mile uh, in diameter. And uh, they de uh, kind of an essential element of the family was the uh, was the loom. All that clothing was was made uh, by uh, right right then and there. Store bought clothing was really didn't show up until after the uh, after the Civil War. So I, I I don't know either about boiling mittens, but whatever kind of innovation that uh, was going on to keep people warm would have come right out of the right out of the home. We are talking to uh, Jerry Richards this morning. He's the sales manager for Gill North America. They make uh, clothing for outdoor applications, especially uh, maritime. And he's uh, showing some of his sales manager skills here this morning <laughs> and explaining some stuff to us. Uh, you've got about um, 10 more minutes in boat talk this morning. Stuff coming in the door here. Got no idea what that is. More wool messages. 
Um, let's go off topic a little bit here, uh, Jerry, and uh, talk about, uh, I guess, going to be a little bit of a sore subject for you, is the uh, 1980 Olympics. You were an Olympian from England at the time. Yes, interesting. Uh, a lot of psychology comes to that. Um, you know, it was a long time ago. Uh, sort of got over that. Where were the Olympics that year? Moscow. I'm going to be in, uh, in Moscow. Ah. Uh, uh, the actual sailing part of it was in a place called Tallinn, which... We actually went to the year before, always, you know, when Olympics are coming around, um, uh, uh, most of the competitors will go to their event venue and practice the year before or whatever it might be, and it gives the venue a chance also to uh, figure out, you know, how it's all going to work. But, uh, yeah, in 1980, um, I was obviously a much younger person, and I was sailing a 470, a two-man trapeze boat, and, um, you know, we we won all sorts of events around Europe, and, uh, you know, the British stiff upper lip and all that because of what was going on in um, Afghanistan. Now, the Russians invaded Afghanistan, decided, you know what, we're not going to send all the teams. And uh, we were one of the unfortunate teams, along with the equestrian and the rowing, that uh, that weren't allowed to go to the Olympics. But I was very fortunate. Um, it did take a toll on me because you are absolute. When you're an Olympic, you know, or, or any top sport, it's 24 hours a day. You're just absolutely dedicated to it. You know, it doesn't matter what the cost is. You're just... You know, it's, it's your goal, it's your focus. And But I was very fortunate that um, I actually participated in the next two Olympics. So uh, I was able to actually experience the, the whole fun of the Olympics and all the camaraderie of the athletes. One thing that really did stand out for me at the Olympics is not so much in sailing, but when you go to the Olympic Village, the difference in size between, you know, the gymnasts and the heavyweight lifters. <laughs> I mean, there are people there that are six foot eight tall and the little gymnasts that are four foot nothing. Mm. And uh, that's one thing that stands out. We have another phone call, Jerry, so let's let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hello, this is Rose Whitehead, and I'm a fiber artist, and I can give you some information about boiled wool mittens. Oh, good. They're not exactly boiled wool. They're actually knitted in with the lanolin still present in them, so you spin them without having scoured off the natural oils from the wool. You knit them, and then it's actually a felting process. So it's a combination of, of agitation and soap and water, and then cooling it to, to even make it shrink more. So you're going back and forth between hot and cold water and using soap in the hot water and agitation, which is you know, a lot of rubbing, to thicken it down. So you end up with this very thick um, wool item that has the lanolin still in it. So it's part; it still has some of the um, uh, water repellent abilities as well as the water wicking abilities that wool has. Hmm. So you could do this with socks, then also. You could do it with socks, also. That's um, and you could do it before knitting too. The the Scandinavians, that's how they made their boots. Huh. With, with the felting process. What kind of fiber art your your real world there, Rose? <laughs> huh? What kind of fiber art is, is in your world? Um, I do we hand spinning, weaving, felting. So yeah, I'm. That's kind of like happened to just be what I know about, and I studied in Scandinavia, so I know about the history of um, of felting from their origin. Hmm. Very good. Does it um, that process make them more durable? Also, 
It does. It it's um, because of the way the wool is made. Um, a wool has um, scales on it, and so with the soap, you're opening up the scales, and so instead of just having these hairs that are spun together, you have them spun together and knitted, and then you take and open up each of the little hairs, and they catch on each other, and so it makes a mat also, so you have another addition of um, of holding the fiber together. Rose, at, we, the, at the cellular level. Rose, we've just been handed a Yankee Magazine article on uh, boiled wool mittens, and uh, they, they claim that uh, the mittens are warm even when wet. Did you Do you find that to be true? Yes. They're heavy, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they would be. Yes. <laughs> but, but, yeah, the, they, are, they are warm when wet. <laughs> Very good, Rose. Thank you for calling in. That's a okay. good contribution to Boat Talk. We are coming up on the end. You only have just a few minutes left. Uh, Jerry, we'll get back to you with uh, one another off-the-wall kind of question. Here's one for you. A V8 MGB? Did I put that down? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my passion is uh, racing vintage cars. So um, not a car that was brought to America. There are several here now, though. But uh, MGB GTV8 is the designation. They made two and a half thousand of them, and I brought, I raced my car in England, and then I brought it over here in 1999. And uh, it's close to a lot of people's heart. A lot of people um, in America know the MGB. They had the MGB over a college or whatever, and when they come to the races and they see this car beating up on the Porsches, they just want to know all about it. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. What kind of sailing do you do nowadays, Jerry? Not a lot, actually. Um, you know, I raced professionally for 15 years, and uh, it's a great sport, a great hobby. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, it does take its toll. It's a lot of work traveling, and, you know, you're always on the water, working on boats, whatever it might be. And uh, the last race I did, I, I, you know, I like to help younger people, and I mentored a young man, and um, we actually raced a mini Transat, just a 21-foot boat. Um, in what they call the mini fastnet over in uh, over in England, it's 750 miles uh, up around the fastnet rock and back, and I've been there a few times. And fortunately, you know, in my travels, I've raced around the fastnet rock in 40 knots of wind, and so I went there planning for that. This is something everybody should do: hope for the best, plan for the worst. And lo and behold, you know, a day into the race, it was blowing 40 knots, and it was just the most wonderful experience sailing at night, just two of us in a small boat, um, huge seas, um, just the best, one of the best experiences I've ever had. Anything over 30 knots, everybody's got their hands very, very full, needless to say. And, and again, very dangerous piece of ocean there. I guess that, that level of world-class sailing kind of ruins Wednesday night beer races for you, doesn't it? Um, I tell you, I'm still just as competitive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I have to warn the you know, when I go on when I go on board Wednesday night racing, um, you know, I make it clear that, you know, if you want me to come along, I'd love to do that, you know, participate in any information, but when that gun goes, I'm all about racing. And, yeah, um, like you say, two speeds, on and off, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jerry Richards this morning uh, from Gill, North America. How can people access the, uh, you must have a website, uh, Jerry? We certainly do. Um, you go to www.gill.com. G-I-L-L-N-A dot com. It's a wonderful website, and if anybody's interested in knowing a little more information, um, you know, by all means, they can email me. They'll find my email address there. 
and uh, it may take me a while to get back to you, but um, absolutely delighted to help anybody enjoy their sailing experience more. And your stuff uh, available locally at, at the uh, classic Maine Chandrally uh, uh, Hamilton Marine. Hamilton Marine, that's right. Sport Maine, Hamilton yep. Marine, yes, absolutely. They actually stock quite a lot of our product. They're, they're a wonderful store. Well, very good, Jerry. We're just about up to the uh, end of the uh, the show, and uh, appreciate your, your spending some time talking with us. Um, I guess we'll uh, we'll offer you an invitation if you're ever up this way. Uh, stop by, and maybe we can get to talk on uh, on the air live. But uh, thank you for for um, talking on Boat Talk today, Jerry. Well, thank you, and uh, I really loved uh, Rose's input as well. I'm going to go and study that a bit more on the on the knitted, knitted gloves. And Tim, um, you know, I've learned a few things today as well. You know, it's always nice to know a bit of history on how things, uh, you know, started their way. So I really appreciate it, and thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Okay, thank you, Jerry Richards. Well, Mike, that's about the end of the this boat talk. Yep. Power of the Community Radio, once again, whether it's baby talk, boat talk, or what talk, you know, uh, like I say, Power of the Community Radio. Input is great. Gotta love it. Thank you. And thank you, Tim Garrity, for stopping by. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. That wraps up Boat Talk for this month. Thanks for supporting this and all other programming here on WERU by making a donation at WERU.org. Coming up next are two programs that are fine examples of why this community radio station is a valuable asset worthy of your support at weru.org. Next is Main Challenge with Bestie Sweet. She talks with folks who are working to keep Maine great. Then, at 4.30, it's back to boat talk of sorts, Tough Island is a unique radio drama commentary that really should be heard. Thanks for supporting WERU.